In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1738 to 1751. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1738 Story number one, The Custodian, written by IMOE Reset. Humans, from time they learned how to use stones as weapons, to the time they developed the atomic bomb, were always the same. Brutal, disregarded, warmongering against each other. And so they strive to be better than their cruelty. They tucked away their dark side in chains, locked in a maximum security cell and the keys are kept by the warden known by the name of humanitarianism. So when they took to the stars and developed FTL travel, they found out what they were only FTL-capable species in the galaxy. They encountered other sapient life, uplifted them, and kept them safe from danger like our mother protects the children. Humanity watched the alien races grow, and despite the many conflicts that occurred in the course of human expansion, materialism and cultural differences, the humans overcame all of those obstacles and spurred forward with blazing engines and undying drive. The humans created the Milky Way Federation, the successor to the United Nations where the humans and the alien races treated each other as equal. Like any great undertaking, it was fraught with challenges and obstacles, but the humans, being the stubbornly determined race they are, broke through those and eventually the Federation was cemented. The existence of the human drive, ambition, curiosity, and determination made it so that the intergalactic travel was not only possible, but reliable, affordable, fast, and efficient. The humans encountered more races, uplifted them again, overcame all barriers, and integrated them. The stubborn ones were subjugated under the military might of humanity and reformed, while the more peaceful ones were welcomed Thousands of years passed, tens of thousands of years, then millions, then billions, then hundreds of billions, and the humans kept expanding. Soon after, the universe in its entirety was explored and brought under their control. But they were not content. So they twisted, turned, punched, burned, sliced, pounded, and then shredded physics to break the barriers of the universe and create pathways to other universes, confirming the multiverse theory. So they did to other universes what they had done to their own. Explore, expand, uplift, integrate, protect. Trillions of years turned into quadrillions, and with the effort of countless individuals, the humans rose to prominence never thought possible. But then, the humans thought to themselves, did we really protect the alien races? Weren't we just invading their freedom of direction? Were we uplifters, or were we dictators under the pretext of enlightenment, justice, and equality? Humanity as a whole started to doubt the choice of their actions. Were they right, or were they very, very wrong? And they had just realized it. The humans, in the end, believed the latter. Over the course of centuries, humans along with their properties would start disappearing from small groups to entire sectors, the alien races realized it too late, for when the last and largest batch of humanity disappeared from the Federation, they were left lost, confused, empty, and somehow despairing. Humanity never provided an example, no trace of humanity would be found, and over the generations they would be reduced or heightened to many forms. 
chosen people of the gods, divine messengers of fallen race, a mere myth or legend, or demons that were recalled to whatever underworld they came from. Humanity moved to another plane of existence, one that is in parallel with baseline reality. From there, they would watch over the multiverse and its myriad races. They no longer saw the alien races as equals, but they saw them as something that they have to protect. Not as a mother would her to her children, but akin to a human would do to a beloved pet. They forsake living in the multiverse to protect the multiverse not only from the unknown threats that may beseech them, but also from the humans themselves should their warden, known as humanitarianism, fail its duty. They forsake the name of humans and adopted the name of custodians. They would establish the multiverse custodianship. And so, my son, that is why we, the Zedtrex, admire the humans and continue to record all of history the best we can. That is why war becomes impossible as leaders of the sides of war simply stand down for seemingly no reason. That is why the extra-dimensional invaders were wiped out by a ghost fleet. That is why the supernova of Vesali Arolus seemingly stopped in time, allowing for people to the system to completely evacuate before actually going supernova. That is why we no longer have weapons of war, but weapons of law and order and weapons of peacekeeping. Son, various things that we perceive as miracles and supernatural events are not actually so. It is the doing of the custodians in the parallel plane watching over us as the guardians of the unknown, the abhorrent, and the unexpected. We are indebted to them, for without them we may have just collapsed under all the chaos. And although the Milky Way Federation is but a fragment of the past, their existence, originally intended as an entity for unity, is no longer necessary. I would have liked for the Federation to remain standing, however. So my son, be kind to the people you meet, or you might not know... A human, oh, sorry, a custodian is amongst them, disguised to be like us. Who knows, you may get their blessings and goodwill. End of story. Story number two, Siege Break, written by Hypothetical Shugoth. The siege on 12 Coruscating Chimes trade station wasn't going terribly well. The small flotilla of shining exemplar, Corwald Concrave, corrective fleet vessels, currently holding an interdiction formation around the planetoid that the station rested on. Slowly maneuvered around it in its path, holding significant in their rights, would assert it as going exceptionally well. But they were outvoted by the station's residents. A poll was taken, and the negative reviews were piling up, all negative and advising others to avoid purchasing such a siege. Conclave services priests were responding to each negative review soothing those stuck on the wrong side of the siege with assertions that it was, in fact, entirely justified. Perhaps their future incarnations would know better than to permit their station master to serve tea harvested from the north-facing slope of an odd-numbered day, especially when the stars and planets in all the system of such important, yes, even the secret ones, were in such an inconspicuous alignment. But if those sinners bequeath their worldly assets to the conclave, they may be able to avoid a few corrective incarnations as lesser vermin, except for any rim ward conclave congregants. 
They were, sadly, consigned to an eternity at the mercy of the prismatic nebula wraiths, due to their false pope's claims that pre-bag tea was an acceptable alternative if no other options were available. That was about the point the station occupants decided that they weren't going to get any helpful answers from the orbiting forces and started rooting their way through emergency manuals. The food reserves were spent, and the boot vendors were running low on stock. In desperation, the administration went through ancient physical contact lists, sobbing as their options dwindled. At the back of the tome of contact information, there was a card with a com code and the text, For when morale is at its bleakest. The circumstances seemed to fit. The superintendent took responsibility and made the call. At first, there was cheery music. Then an alien voice chirped out the organization's greeting in Gal standard. After a brief negotiation, the request went out, and a timer began counting down. Thirty minutes. The conclave may not have been allowed to simply bombard the station into artistically pleasing rubble, but they had shown far less reluctance on testing weapon systems and fire patterns on anyone attempting to break the siege. They apparently caught the transmission as it was hypernetted past, as they redoubled their patrols with several of their faster ships heading to the system's junk gate to intercept the incoming aid. They were just too slow. Seven minutes, thirty seconds. The ship that tore through the junk gate must have been spun through an accelerated jump, as it had the beginnings of a relativistic bloom glowing about its longer extremities and drive coils. It proceeded to carom around the solar system, bleeding off speed into gravity wells, until its distinctive heraldry became the proper colors once again. Atmospheres burned as energy was dumped, and the craft neared its destination from an angle clear of the bulk of the patrols. One final energy jump accomplished by the deft hull-to-hull -hull abrasion that sent the nearest patrol craft spinning, and the craft came in for its landing. One hour, 47 minutes, 37 seconds. So, uh, that's 100 regulars, 200 vegetarian, 5 vegan, and 1 seafood extravaganza, 50 extra-large meat apocalypse, three stuffed crust pickled deep-fried double everythings, and one Hawaiian style on your regular tab, right? The helmeted figure stood at the door of the cargo bay, seemingly unaware of the mayhem plainly visible on the daylit sky behind it. That's right, wait, 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 Hawaiian style? Several of the superintendent's ventral visual fronds focused in on one of the executives behind it. Are you trying to call in the volcano lower, down on us again? Not my fault that none of you know a good thing when you stick it in your food holes. Grumbling, the superintendent focused back on the pizza con delivery pilot and palmed the hundred cred chit into its hand. Thanks for the prompt response. It'll be daily order until the upstarts get the message and move along. The human teen examined the chit, then pocketed it with eagerness obvious despite the environmental suit. Sweet! Well, uh, we're in good hands, especially if you tip. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1739. Story number one. That's not how honor works. Written by underscore underscore dash underscore 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 dash 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 underscore. I approached my general's headquarters at a brisk pace. He had to know what I knew. The interloper had to be exposed, and the failure of my former company had to be brought to his attention. There shouldn't be officers like her and they shouldn't be enlisted that follow her to death. I was right. Only the foolish and suicidal had maintained that position. After three knocks, I heard, Enter! I entered the room, 
snapping to attention and delivering a salute at my general's desk. He looked at me for a prolonged moment, returning my salute after an uncomfortably long period had passed between us. You were persistent in seeing, Captain. What is it that you have to report? The general demanded more than asked. His deep voice filling the small room covered with maps and charts. Yes, sir. I wanted to inform you of the failure of my company and its auxiliary units. I described to the general my company standing before her arrival and my departure. She had no concept of tactics, much less strategy, and was determined to lead us to destruction. There weren't even any magicians in her entourage. I had five. The general regarded me with a blank expression, offering nothing in return to my animated description of what befell one of his companies. He pulled open a drawer, fetching a slate he regarded for a long moment. Captain, you say the damned cabal countermounted and took control of your company. Is that correct? When I nodded, he nodded. You're positive you were outnumbered, yes? Not only did I nod, I gave the details of the various formations in the region. We had been there five years, but this surge of local troops would overwhelm even the best of units. Non-human populations wanted their own leadership. They didn't want ours. She is my daughter. The general's words caught me off guard as he pushed the slate towards me. The slate held an image of the damned kobold gleefully hugging my color sergeant as he lifted her off the ground. I was left blinking as he continued, an aggressive expression on his face. I sent my daughter to assist you, to help with relations with the natives. She had orders signed by me. You're telling me that you, in your wisdom, abandoned your position and left my daughter on your company to die. Is that correct, Captain? Uh, sir, I explained. Is that correct? He demanded in a tone that made my blood run cold. You abandoned my daughter and your company because the occupation wasn't matching your expectations. I regarded the plaque that he pushed towards me again, and despite my training, my cheeks turned bright red. There she was, a short blue lizard thing amongst what she remained of the company of human soldiers, proudly standing in front of the general's banner. Sir, I hesitated. You've had a fallback on your aristocratic upbringing, the general interrupted. We aren't expanding presently. We're making local populations part of our empire. You have failed at this. Failed so severely your own officers have endorsed her. He gestured to the plot. Have endorsed my daughter's support. My non-human daughter. Tell me, Captain, why should I believe a word you have to say? I studied my boots. There was nothing I could say that wouldn't dig my grave all the deeper. My cobalt daughter did what you couldn't, with your own company. She dispersed a rebellion and brought an entire kingdom into the folds of the Empire. A company you thought outmanned and would be overrun. If looks could kill, the general was doing his best to destroy me. Return home, the general demanded. Clearly, a cabal can lead human forces better than your pampered and spoiled ass. He signed something as he spoke and handed it to me. If I see you again, you better believe that you'll be at the front under her command. You won't make it home in time for winter solstice celebrations. Leave my sight before I send you back to my daughter as a private. I bowed as I took my new orders, the blood draining from my face. I'd never lead a combat unit again, and I prayed that I'd never be a part of one. End of story. Story number two. 
The Human Plan, written by Aspire again. Hugen trooped up to the rise of the hill, sniffing the air carefully as he peered forward in search of the family farm. He had left five orbits ago to fight with their new allies, the humans, against the aggressive Moldecon Empire. The wounds he had received left him too hobbled to fight, but healthy enough to return to the farm. While he was grateful for his life, and that his wounds weren't disabling, he did not truly savor a return to a farm. His family had settled on the frontier planet when he was a child. All he really remembered when he thought of the farm was year after year of work, scrimping to buy the necessities they could not produce, and then every few years having enough savings to purchase something of substance. It was never a luxury to make life easier, but instead something to help produce more crop. His mother had insisted upon that point. His father reluctantly agreed. The year before he had been drafted to fight against the Muldigan, they had purchased a cultivator that helped grow the harvest. Hugen assumed that even though with reports of good crops while he had been gone, they would still be saving to try and buy the power souls that his mother had dreamed would help clear the forest that surrounded their farmland and to open more land to increase the crops substantially. He would be old and orange, Hugen thought. By the time the hard scrabble land that they had settled on would be a real farm, like those on their faraway home planet. Then there were no shortcuts, he grumbled. And that is why Hugen was astonished as he came to the top of the hill and looked down at the prosperous farm spread before him. His family homestead had at least tripled in size, and as he raised a paw to shield the dominant sun's glare, he saw even more land being cleared for cultivation by teams of workers. Fear rose in Hugen. Had the family land been taken over? Communications between the fleet and the frontier worlds were spotty at best, but Hugen could recall no concerning words from home, just that all was well. Hugen hurried to the farmhouse, now painted, and with the solar collector outside powering the farm, he even heard the soft sounds of music from within the home. Where had such luxuries come from? Hurriedly, Hugen began to open the door and then suddenly feeling awkward. He scratched at the door. In a few moments, the door opened and he saw his mother, wearing not the rough home-woven clothing from when he had left, but new, clearly purchased material from a clothing cellar. Hugen's mother yipped in happiness and licked his face. Her ears perked high. Later that evening, after his father had returned with the hired workers from the newly stumped free field, Hugen and his pack gathered around the table to sup. He was astonished at the relative luxury that he had found himself surrounded by. I still don't understand how you were able to afford all of this, Hugen said, pausing to lap up some water. It should have taken years to save up to open up the land like this. His father lit what Hugen recognized as human tobacco in Cindery and leaned back. Well, my pup, it's like this. After the human reserve fleet took orbit to help keep the Muldecan away while you were fighting, their merchants came shortly after. Hugen cocked his head sideways. He knew of the human merchants that had followed the combat fleet, selling cheap goods at high prices. A low growl emerged from Hugen. Hugen's father waved a calming paw. Now I was suspicious at first, too. But if it weren't for them, we'd be in the same shape we were when you left. 
As we found out, those humans have some, uh, crawling, uh, hecking good ideas, especially when it comes to selling. Hugin's mother nipped at her mate. Mugen, language. Hugin's father nipped back playfully, and Hugin felt warm inside to see his sire and dame showing such affection. What ideas? Hugin asked. Hugin's father took a deep drag from his cigar and leaned forward, as if he was going to tell a secret. Their ideas are what made it possible for us to invest so quickly into the place, to buy what we needed to produce the crop we knew would make a high profit, to clear the timber and get it to town to sell, to buy the clothes that make living and working just a little bit more comfortable. His father eyed the cigar he held, and even to produce the income to save up enough that even your mother doesn't begrudge a few luxuries. He took another puff. Hugin's mother put a paw on her mate's broad shoulders as her mouth pulled back in what the humans would call a doggy smile. Let me tell you, Hugin, about the wonderful thing the humans call the installment plan. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1740 Story number one. Sitius Altius Fortius. Written by T. Marcos. Caria leveled her rifle at the mouth of the anyway, squeezing off another burst that took an oncoming bite in the thorax. She heard the gun click empty, and the last shot and swore, bumbling for a reload. They're coming through, she screamed. She didn't know if there were allies within earshot to hear, or if her panic call would simply draw more of the raiders. They had been caught off guard, without proper troops to defend this point. Her last magazine clicked home, and she cycled the action, aiming across the square. Already, there were more of the insectile raiders crossing towards her position. Again, they fell under her fire. But as a last bullet splattered bites in trails across the flagstones, there came another, and another. Shaking with fear, Caria stood and drew her knife. You can't outrun a bite. Their long, chitinous legs blurred as they streamed towards her position scrabbling over the gall-strewn plaza. And then, silence, as they froze and jerked their heads to stare behind her with an unsettling coordination. She couldn't bear to turn her back on the bite, but she chanced to look to the side just as a slim figure in matte black bodysuit dashed towards the raiders. It was small and had only two legs to Caria's four. A human, she realized. They had come only days ago, a small contingent in response to their distress signal. Her throat clenched with panic as she realized the lone figure meant to fight the entire horde itself. Wait, she cried out. There's at least a half-height coming. You need to... She cut off as the human flung itself at the lead bite, dwarfed by its three-meter bulk, but so, so fast. Blade shimmered from its black-gloved hands, and the raider collapsed in a spray of ichor. The others hissed in outrage and swarmed closer, still unable to pin down the nimble attacker. But where speed fails, numbers may suffice. A scything claw tore into the human's shoulder, and its arm dropped to the ground. Caria suppressed a scream as she saw her hope of salvation with her, afraid to draw the bite's attention. From here she could see the lower half of the human's face blow its eyeway, breathing hard with teeth bared. No... Not just bad, smiling, verily. It flourished its remaining blade and charged in, 
Seconds later, it came away with a twitching bite limb clasped in its hands. The human eyed it, then sliced it cleanly at the end and jammed it onto its own blood-slicked shoulder. Carrier chalked, staring in disbelief as the bodysuit came alive. Black webbing spread over the limb like a twining plant. The telltale shimmer of force fields danced over its surface. Then strips of chitin fell to the ground as the limb cracked, stretched, compressed, tore. In seconds, it was over. The human raised another black-gloved hand and curled another five fingers into a fist. From the suit, a shimmering blade of force sprang up. He charged back in. The bite offensive had lost some of its enthusiasm. The raiders clearly disquieted by what they had just seen. Garia felt an odd pang of empathy for the bite on that count. There were still so, so many, however, and it wasn't long before another attack came scything down towards the human from the side. He caught the human on their newly regenerated arm and skidded off, throwing the attacker off balance for a counter-blow that took its head. Twice more the human took injuries, and twice more it jammed the bite flesh against the wound. The black bodysuit regrew, and it fought on, increasingly impervious to the raider's claws. It was only a minute more before the last of them dropped, and the human ran over to her position, its legs blurring with a disconcerting speed. Hey, he called out, waving a hand, the bite hand. If she hadn't seen it come off, she wouldn't have been able to tell between the two. The human cocked his head, and she realized what she had been staring. Oh, um, she stammered. You saved me. Thank you. The human smiled again, but rather than a promise of death that it had carried before, she got the sense that he was merely amused. First time you all seen one of us fight, he said knowingly. Carrier didn't trust herself to speak. She just nodded mutely. He laughed and flexed his new arm. <laughs> yeah, we get that a lot, he said. Don't worry, we mostly keep it to ourselves. No, she said, finding her words at last. No, it was incredible. You took down all those bites, but, but your body, C can you fix it? Fix, the man said, flexing his arm. Looks fixed to me. But, but, but it's not. Carrier trailed off, looking significantly at the dead bite around her. You know... Not human. The man's smile faded, and he held up his hand with fingers splayed. My original arm got chopped off a while back, he said. Cyrillin, or one of another civil uprising deals, can't remember. Was the first one I lost. I still remember how easy it came off. He shook his head and sat down on the top of column near her. Carrier was struck by how small he seemed now that he was closer. He looked up at her and smiled once more. We're not the most durable folks, as it turns out. Y'all, y'all are got freakishly alien muscles and bones and exoskeletons and uh, whatnot. We tried to keep up with a straight tack for a while, but that gets expensive. Heavy, he frowned. Pain in the ass to maintain, too. They sat quietly for several long seconds before Carrier mustered the courage to ask another question. How much of you is still human? she asked. The man turned to her and removed his eyewear revealing one eye of crimson red and another of yellow, with an undulating, vertically stretched pupil. One hundred percent, he said quietly. Like I said, we don't start out with much. Hell, I think they used to make jokes about how easy we broke compared to others. He held up his hand again to examine it. So we said, fine, we break, we fall, then we stand again. But not all of you, Carrier said. 
He laughed, shaking his head. <laughs> ah, you'll always get hung up on the meat. Soul, it is just meat. The human isn't the meat. It is a part that keeps getting back up. And sure, maybe we're a little different each time. He flicked a finger on his arm and gave a hard metallic tink and raised a spark. The durable bite chitin resonating slightly under the bodysuit. A little stronger, a little faster, a little less likely to go down. He flashed her another smile, and this time there was no trace of amusement in his expression. A little more human in all the ways that matter. End of story. Story number two. That first and most terrible sacrifice. Written by Dragonson04. We thought the humans to be peaceful, calm, perhaps even friendly. Though they largely kept to themselves, there were a few that dared to venture far into the larger galaxy, and there were no major incidents with their wanderlust, beyond the occasional minor infraction involving not fully understanding local customs or laws. As their relative few wanderers became colonists, and small colonies were built on harsh worlds, curiosity flipped to the other side, and became the norm for humans. With thousands of them being only a soda system away, many others of many species went to go at them. Surprisingly, they didn't seem to mind at all. They regularly took selfies with any who wanted. It almost became a game to see which human had taken one with the most different species. They were fascinating people for a long time. Their grasp of science leapt forward by a few centuries after they started to collaborate with more and more research bodies. Once certain concepts were revealed to be real, their curiosity ran away with them, as they put it. Things previously unimagined became theories, and more often than not, those theories were proven in the end under them. The bright beacon that was the galaxy started to attract unwanted attention. No one in the galaxy had ever seen or heard of them before. They claimed to come from a far-off place. Not exactly a galaxy. It was hard to translate what they were saying. Their way of communicating was, well, alien. The human curiosity was piqued, and they tried to talk to our new visitors, to get to know them, to possibly befriend them, and our visitors were just as eager to get to know the humans. It was only after an entire human colony disappeared, and the corpses of thousands of residents of said colony were found with evidence of being vivisected and possibly eaten, that we all understood what they meant by getting to know the humans. In the metaphorical blink of an eye, the humans turned on our visitors, who they now called desecrators. The humans fought with everything that they had, and it was more than enough. The desecrators were being beaten by huge marches in every field of the battle they tried. They were quickly on the run. They were cunning and clever, though, and adapted to human strategy. More human colonies were lost. Tens of thousands dead and desecrated. I will spare you the gory details, but let us just say it only made the humans even more angry. Humans started walking around with what they call the thousand-yard stare. There was a certain light or warmth or spirit that seemed to have been drained from them. I asked a human friend about what was going on. What's wrong with the humans? Why is there no light in your eyes any longer? We grieve. No amount of time can heal the wounds that they have given us. 
Our lost families, friends, and neighbors can never be replaced. At first, we were curious about them, and now we know exactly what they are. And since our curiosity has been fully satisfied in the most terrible way, all we feel now is a need for vengeance. Curiosity. That simple thing is what made humans human, and that is the first thing they sacrificed under the hammer of war. They forged into something dark and terrible, something so antithetical to curiosity. Vengeance. No longer caring, no longer wondering, no longer wanting to learn or cooperate. Simply wanting to destroy that which they consider to be their enemy. Truly a terrible cost for ones who were driven to the stars by the desires to experience the first and leave the second far in the past. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1741 Story number one. Talking Shop, written by Ice Cream and Wine. Tanther shivered nervously as he moved to the shop door. I don't really want to do this, he said to himself. He shook himself and opened the door. The shop was dark and gloomy and appeared to be empty. I uh, really don't like this, he thought. Where was Nitar? As far as he knew, she hadn't run away or been forced out like most of the clock's rather residents. Something was off here, and she didn't like surprises. Who are you and what do you want? said a voice in an atrociously accented common. Tanther nearly jumped out of his skin as some of the gloom resolved itself into a smallish creature that advanced into the center of the shop. It was wearing a hooded cloak, so he couldn't see it properly. Where's Nightall? I have to talk to her, said Tanther. She's in terrible danger. She's not here, so you can talk to her instead said the creature. Kraken is on his way and she needs to be somewhere else before he gets here. As I said, she is not here right now. Now who are you and what does Kraken want with her? My name is Tanfer and I don't really have time for this. I have to warn Nightor. I suggest you make time and tell me what's going on. There is no time for that, said Tanfer, moving towards the cloaked figure, then stopping in his tracks, as the largest hand cannon he'd ever seen in his life just appeared out of nowhere. I'm waiting, said the figure. Kraken is the chief enforcer for the local crime syndicate. He's stone-cold killer, and he likes to hurt people. And what does that have to do with Nitar? And now that Nitar's parents are out of the way, Rotark, the local crime boss, wants the shop and inventory, and will force Nitar to sign them over to him, and then he'll probably kill her. And how do you know this? Encouraged by the hand cannon waving up and down, Temper said, it is common knowledge on the streets, and what Rotak wants, Rotak gets. You say Gracket is on his way here? Yes. He should be here in a few minutes. In that case, you can leave by the back door and go home. But I need to see Night. You can't, and you should leave. now. The voice spoke as the last word of the sentence in a capital letters. Tamfer considered his options and came to the correct conclusion, and let himself out of the back of the shop. He briefly considered lurking in the alley, but the tone of his voice still rang in his head, and grudgingly he made his way home. The peace and quiet in the shop was interrupted by the door being nearly shaken off of its hinges by a seven-foot-tall barot, all scaly hide, talons, and fangs. Nature, where are you? You tidy little morsel. Time for some fun, it bellowed. The smallish hooded creature moved into the middle of the shop. Noisy bugger, aren't you? 
Who are you? Charlotte Graken. Produce night or now, or you will suffer greatly. Not that would be possible. She's away visiting her parents in the hospital. Hospital? You mean they survived the crash? That they did. And how do you know about the crash? It's not common knowledge outside the family. What is it to you, you miserable small thing? I had hoped to have some fun with Nidor, but as you are here, you have to do, snarled Kraken. Before he finished speaking, he lunged at a diminutive figure, his talons cutting through the space that, until very recently, had been occupied by the hooded figure. Twice more he tried, but the hooded figure just moved out of the way as he blundered past. Enough of this, you die now, Kraken screamed, drawing a sword a three-foot-long, wickedly curved blade. Every time he cut the hooded figure, it just wasn't there. Time and again he tried, with the same non-result. Blowing hard, Kraken paused, and it began to dawn on him that he was outmatched and out of his depth. To answer one of your questions, I am a friend of the family. If Nighthawk's parents hadn't answered my distress call, I would have died on the asteroid after my ship drive failed. So, you can understand my interest in what happens to them, and I became very fond of NITA. After they contacted me, I did a little research on this remote and lonely outpost, and what I discovered appraised me not. I am quite happy that I don't have to go looking for you. Kraken wanted to pull his pistol, and it was at this point it all went pear-shaped for him, and a few minutes later, he drowned. Sometime later, armed with the requisite information provided by the late Kraken, the hooded figure wandered down the street towards the unassuming dirty grey building. Even in the dark cycle, the building blazed with light from every window and shadows could be seen moving to and fro inside. It was brain-numbingly cold on the street and two guards were huddled in the arched doorway, trying to leach some heat from the nearly spent brazier. Sometime later, the hooded figure stepped through the door of Rotak's office and closed the door. Who the hell are you? said Rotak, pressing the button on his desk repeatedly. Don't bother, said the hooded figure. They are not coming. Not coming? What do you mean not? Oh. There, just to your left, said the hooded figure. You really are a sorry excuse for a murderous bastard. You didn't even have the sense to have some real people on your payroll, did you? Everybody in this building belonged to you, and therefore it was easier than I thought. Look, we can work this out, blustered Rotok. I can give you money, a ship, anything. No, you can't, said the hooded figure. You have nothing left. No men, no bought and paid for coppers. Your accounts have been drained and passed on to the deserving. And all that is left is for you to pay the price of your crimes. Murder and torture of men, women and children. And for what? To be the top man in this poxy little shithole in the middle of nowhere on a planet lot years from anywhere. Maybe that's what you counted on, that nobody in authority would give a crap about what happened here. Well, the clock is always ticking around now your time is up. A day later, on the bridge of the Federal Ship Light Bearer, parked in the local square. Well, said Commander Dertarak, what did you find? 
27 dead criminals and bent coppers, replied Trooper Drantag. All the same way, all between the eyes, even the Kruntarg, who technically don't have eyes. The hole was between the sensory organs. Except for one. Who is a Draken? Draken? We've been looking for him for years, ever since the recycling incident. We found him now, well, most of him at least. What the hell happened here? No clue at all, sir. All I know is that some kid said that a hooded figure stopped him on the street and gave him a data node and told him to give it to the Federal Task Force. The data node laid it all out, names, dates, figures, everything. Everybody named in it, node, ended up dead. But according to the kid, that happened whilst we were en route, said Dutrak. Yeah, I don't get that bit either, or I do get it, and I don't want to think about it. Who or what the hell could do this? Don't know, sir. But I wouldn't want to face them in a dark alley, or, well, a lit building, if it comes to that. None of the cameras were working either, in the street all in the building. No, sir. Everything electrical in the building was shut down. Lights, computers, everything. Except for the aquarium. Uh, don't ask. Uh, I, I don't get it either, sir, said Drangtag. And, to be honest, uh, I don't really want to think about it too much. Commander Dirtrack was a practical man, and he, in his instance, decided to agree with his subordinate. Besides, other than the data node, he had nothing to go on. Everyone who appeared to be connected to this affair was dead. He figured that whoever was left alive was innocent. He would let the Commissioner Krog do the thinking. Sometime later, Tamfer said to Nitar, Who was that? And how did he do all of that in such a short time as well? Nitar smiled at him and said, uh, that was Dave. Dave? said Tamfer. Come on, Tamf, last night. Everybody knows Dave. End of story. Story number two. Human landing on Titan, a local perspective. Written by SlowAD2584. Oh my god, dude. Have you heard? One of the gods of ancient myth landed the other day. Uh, at least I think he was one of the gods. The stuff he did was certainly incredible. See, he landed in some sort of metal thing and stepped out. He was huge, probably at least two meters tall, and he was glowing white hot. He looked around and his breath was literal lava. No, 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 seriously. The droplets of molten water left his mouth and fell hissing to the ground, eventually solidifying back into proper crust material. Remind me to go get a sample. I'll need a pick. Uh, that's solid ice now. The guy walked around for a bit, using his tools here and there, doing a who knows what the gods do. His knife and drills were glowing red hot as well, and carved the ice crust up like it was butter. At one point, uh, he put his hand to the cliff edge, and his hand began to melt the freaking rock face. He seemed to take joy from that bit and started using his hands to work the solid ice into the little spaceman figure, looking at him, holding a flag. He was forming a rocky ice with his freaking hands. Dude, I just... I'll, I'll show you with the ice statue he made later. It only took him minutes, and will probably last forever. He then noticed one of our volcanoes in the distance, and hurried over to it, and dude, he just hopped into the molten ice of the volcano crater, and seemed to take a bath in it. A volcano. That molten ice had to be uh, 120, 140 degrees at least. He sighed and seemed to be comforted by the volcano lava. He may have been cold before. Well, uh, 
He got out of the volcano, steaming with a fiery lava vaporizing off of his body. Clouds of volcano fury flowing him as he hurried back to his ship and flew away. Wow, that was amazing, right? Um, some kind of flaming titan out of legend walked around a bit, spitting lava and melting stone, spending some time inside a volcano like it was nothing, like he was a relief. Can you imagine such a thing? End of chapter. Tales from Outer Space 1742. Story number one. Humans are the lowest species. Written by Rebel Hero. For its entire history, humanity believed itself to be unique in the universe. For much of their history, they thought that they were alone. That their solar system was the only one. When they learned about the true scale of the universe, they immediately began their search for other life. For hundreds of years, they found nothing. A mania stirred in their entertainment spheres about what alien life could be like. Everything from conquerors to weak and lost, dangerous predators to friendly and cuddly was explored. But in every story, no matter what the alien was like, humanity would triumph. Whether it was through French rebellion, defiance or conquest of their own, humans always wound up on top. No matter what, they believed some part of what made them human would be greater than any alien species. Imagine their surprise when they finally made contact with the universe at large and the billions of life forms in it that they have nothing that another species doesn't. They aren't the strongest. They aren't the most hardy. They aren't the smartest or most clever. They aren't the most industrious. They didn't have the deadliest weapons or the most advanced tactics. Everything that gave them an edge for their revolution on Earth was null and void on the galactic scale. All of the traits, evolutionary hiccups and genetic mutations, the social oddities that defined them to themselves, were decidedly middling. They didn't even have the most inflated egos. Humanity was nothing. They had nothing. They joined the universe at large as lower-class citizens. They couldn't even lean on their treasured underdog tropes because there were millions of species beneath them. Through and through, they were simply average. This infuriated them. In the interest of fairness, it should be noted that humanity was not disliked. The opposite was true. Humans individually made up excellent friends, companions, crewmates, soldiers, and laborers. They were very charming, clever, and hard-working problem solvers. It was on the whole that they strove for more. They tried to climb the ladder for millennia to no success. They had nothing to offer that another species couldn't do better. They barely managed to colonize their frankly lacking solar system and set up a few dangerous extrasolar colonies. Humanity was too competitive to accept this. They refused to accept their place in the universe. They needed to be special. They needed to be the best at something, anything. Their temper tantrums nearly earned them a place amongst the few species in history to ever be solar locked, denied access to the universe, and forever quarantined in the home system. However, they had a revelation. The diversity that caused them so much strife throughout their history could become a great strength to them. So much of humanity knew what it was like to be considered lesser, even before the galaxy opened up to them. The hatred and prejudice that kept them divided resulted in an explosion of cultures and countercultures that mixed over time and formed even more cultures and countercultures. 
the wars that followed catapulted their technology forward time and time again, but always kept them from the true potential. So humanity decided that they could not play to their strengths, that they would work on their greatest weakness, unity. It just so happens that their love for our underdog stories also played a part here. But it wasn't to be humanity that played the underdog, it would be the millions of lesser races beneath them. Instead of climbing the ladder, humanity descended it. They gathered the lesser races, taught them the cultures and arts, industry and charity. They protected them from the aggression of larger empires, and secretly taught them how to fight and defend themselves. Humanity only asked one thing in return. For each race humanity helped, they had to in turn take a race under their wing. This move shocked the galactic community at large. No one had ever bothered with the lesser races except for the labor and servants. Something about the stirred a fire in humanity. Any species that came under attack, humanity would show up in force to protect them, and with every race defended, humanity gained an ally of undying loyalty. Now, it's important to note that for a long time, the humans did this quietly. They never announced their aims to anyone. When they showed up to defend one of the lower species, their ships bore no markings, answered no hails, and were even designed to be as neutral-looking as possible. So when the Rinksha thought humanity had become an eyesore on the galaxy and warped into Sol's system, what waited for them was over 700 fleets. It was the largest gathering in galactic history. It was also one of the quickest unconditional surrenders. It was rumored that so many ships were present that Earth was shrouded in an eclipse for two days. Since that day, humanity continued to spread through the galaxy, with their uplifted pets in tow, liberating and uplifting species after species. Humanity went at this for so long, eventually the uplifted surpassed the uplifters. Century by century, humanity fell further and further down the ladder, until at last, there was no one else to help. Humanity now sits to the lowest species in the galaxy, an ancient race of temperamental hotheads who threw the galactic community into chaos and undid billions of years of carefully maintained castes, surrounded by millions of species who owe them a debt that can never be repaid. All because we thought that they were nothing special. End of story. Story number two. A simple question written by Rednull97. A. How dare you interrupt my break, you primitive ape? H. Whoa, slow down there, buddy. In my role as president of the Terran Union, I just wanted to ask when humanity will be given a seat at the council. And what makes you think that you primitives are deserving of such an honor? Uh, I'm, I'm not quite sure. That's, that's why I'm asking. But we thought with the invention of FTL... Our mastery of space-time manipulation, or conquering of death, we answered enough questions. So, that at least one of the answers would be enough to be considered for a seat. Ha! You filthy primates are far too unevolved to even be thinking of a question worthy of answering. Much less answering said question. With all due respect, I think you are underestimating us. Fine. You know what? Let's make uh, this one of those bets that you're so fond of. If you can ask a question I cannot answer, your uncivilized barbaric race will get a minor seat in the council. If not, you'll leave my room immediately. I have had it with all your constant insults. Why don't we go all in? We want a full seat, equal with the top three in power and standing. 
And why would I agree to such a demand from such a worthless being? If we lose, we'll not request another seat for 10,000 years. That seems an appropriate counteroffer. Or, uh, are you scared that I could win? Ah! I'm not scared of Melvin such as you. Computer log this bet as accepted. So ask your question and do your race to be beheaded, imbecile. Sure. What happens when an unstoppable force hits an immovable object? Excuse me? What? Oh, come on. It's not a complicated question. Unstoppable force meets an immovable object. What now? That, uh, that doesn't count. That question doesn't have a valid answer. EDI, count that bet is invalid. Uh, firstly, uh, you never specified the question has to have a valid answer. Uh, secondly, it does have a valid answer, and quite a simple one at that. The computer. EDI, the human is correct. Whether or not the question has an answer is insignificant. Additionally, if the human can provide a valid answer, your point is made entirely moot. Fine! So do tell me the answer, you overly confident fool! It's quite simple. If one thing can't be stopped and the other thing can't be moved, they have to pass through each other. What? That is not a valid answer! You're a deceiving fraud of a being! I can assure you it is. Humanity's seat is hereby granted, and humans are, from this point onward, equal standing to the big three. This decision is final. No! I refuse to accept and acknowledge those primitive apes as equals! It is my duty to remind you that it is illegal to insult those of equal standing. The appropriate fine has been transferred from your account to that of the human. Ah, finally justice! End of story. Story number three. Humans and the Galactic Standard. Written by Coppect. Extract of Humans and the Galactic Immunity, written and published by Lieutenant Stan Stein, humanized. The Galactic Standard is a record of every language and dialect spoken by known galactic civilizations. Not only that, it contains every form of galactic common, the language of diplomacy. You see, the galactic spoken by mandibles and beaks is different from the one we can hear out of moving goo and lips. Sounds complicated, right? We haven't even started yet. The Galactic Standard also contains every unit of measure, every name of natural phenomena recorded, etc. You can probably imagine why no species knows everything inside. Well, that is, except the humans. They stumbled into the Tydra Federation a couple centuries back. They were already pretty established, with territory and industrial capacity reaching medium to high in the ranking of civilizations. Apart from that, they weren't exceptional in anything. Only a few months after their acceptance into the Grand Chamber, rumors and news of the diplomacy being the strangest thing appeared. Concepts like give-and-take borders and the like were bizarre enough, but the thing that stood out was their ambassador's knowledge of many languages. Many of you readers might be thinking that this isn't such a wild concept. You'd be right, even more so if you want to know the only reason the crisis of the Lothbang frontier didn't escalate any further was that the human delegate spoke first in the Soliot tongue while confronting them. For the high seat and their dependencies, though, more so at the time, this was brand new shiny stuff. You could almost see the skin under Tiangto, the seated scales, when Ambassador Lindley spoke to him in perfect tantio. I digressed a bit, but you'll surely excuse me. The point is, the humans were the first to know everything in the Galactic Standard. 
And even today, many centuries later, not many species have managed this feat, either by lack of capabilities or simply lack of interest. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1743 Hollow Man, written by Rosie013 Back when I was your age, our village paid regular tribute to the Sky Clans. Food, mostly, but sometimes our tools or even our young villagers were taken if we didn't have enough crops to please them. We were poor and hungry all the time, but that had been our way for generations, almost as far back as we could remember. All of the other villages in walking distance were the same, just struggling to eat as little as possible every day to survive just so those above didn't take their children for who knows what purpose. We lived, we farmed, we gave, we died. That was our life. Despite what little we had, we secretly had much more than any other village we had ever heard of, because we had a hollow man. It was a secret, of course, hidden from others on pain of death, our own private shrine to the times before. We knew the Sky Cans found out where we would all die as punishment for our faith. Our people's stories tell us that we used to worship the Hollow Man we found when the Sky Tribes first brought us these lands. Angry-faced statues, standing silently over the hills and fields like ancient guardians of the gods. Some of them had damaged by the ravages of time, revealing cavities within, hence our name for them. We built temples around where they stood, sometimes in rows, sometimes in outward-facing circles, and piled offerings at their feet in hopes of gaining the gods' attention. At first, the Sky Clans took no notice, but as they took more and more each passing season, they eventually grew jealous of the attention we gave the Hollow Mans. They tore down the temples and killed the priests. They carved up the Hollow Mans and took them away, telling us that the old gods were dead, and it was them who deserved our tribute. Soon, there was no hollow man left, except, by a quirk of chance, ours. You see, the hollow man were always found in grassy plains, all the tops of rolling hills that dot our homelands. Yet, ours was not. Our village is the closest to the southern forest, and in rare times between farm work, some of the village males would go to cut wood for trade, or making frames for homes. It was there that we found the lone hollow man, hidden in the gloom beneath the canopy. Nobody knows how it had gotten there, so ancient that perhaps it was there before even the forest, and simply refused to yield to the tree's advance. How Alder at the time was wise, and recalling the fate of the others, ordered the hollow man covered with tent cloth that none outsider of our village was to learn of its existence on pain of death. We feared the other villagers or clans would trade our secrets to the Sky Clans to save their own young, you see. Eventually, it became our clan's tradition to risk visiting our hollow man to make an offering whenever an important decision was made in the village, never taking the same route twice to avoid our feet wearing a marked path to its location. Life went on for many seasons more, until eventually something unexpected happened. The Sky Tribes came to stay. Not with us, of course. They would never lower themselves to be around us lowly fathers longer than necessary. They landed their boats in the dry lands beyond the mountains where no clans farmed, 
and loudly built their giant metal and light hive houses. We were terrified, of course. Did this mean that they were not satisfied with the tributes we paid them? Were they going to take even more now that they were here to stay all season round? With too many questions and so few answers, the decision was made for our village to make an offering to the Hollow Man for guidance and protection. Our elder had grown too frail to make the journey, so it was up to her assistant to place the offering. Me. I was young but had made the trip once before, so I set off with the finest glazed pottery beads we could make in the hopes that the Hollow Man would guide our prayers to the gods above. I was nearly there when I came across an unknown animal staggering through the forest, weirdly gangly and loudly wheezing from exertion. It was so inattentive it could have walked right by me without noticing, and in my fear of the new creature, I almost hid out of reflex. But luck betrayed me. I must have given myself away somehow, for it snapped its head up to stare right at me. I saw fear and pain on its emaciated face, but more than that, I saw intelligence in its eyes. Whatever it was, it wasn't an animal, but a person. It didn't resemble any of the proud, arrogant sky people who forced tribute from us, and it was the most certainly not the another villager. In the darkness beneath the trees, I realized I'd mistaken its grimy rags for part of its hide. It barked something unintelligible, clearly fearful of me. After a short exchange between us that only confirmed that neither of us understood one another, I cautiously approached and mimed eating. I had nothing with me, apart from the offering, of course. The fasting was supposed to be a part of the spirituality of the journey, not that the village could spare any food anyway. Getting nowhere, I made my polite excuses and left, careful not to turn my back on the strange stranger until I was out of sight. It tugged my soul to leave such a pitiful being unaided, but I couldn't take it back to the village. We could barely feed ourselves, let alone outsiders. I would have to report its description to the elder in my return, so that the village was alert that it didn't try and steal any of the crops in the night. Our hollow man was right where my memory said it would be, its statuesque form obscured by the now weather-beaten top that covered it. Even out of sight, just being in its presence was exhilarating, like the air itself was on fire with energy of a hundred lightning storms. I quickly removed the cover and knelt in front of it, praying for guidance and safety for my village. Once done, I wrapped the offering beads around the limbs so that they could be in contact with the hollow man, and by extension, our gods. It was time to cover up again when I realized my mistake. I spun around to find the strange stranger had followed me. Oh gods! I would have to kill them now. We couldn't afford for word of our hollow man to get out. The Skyclads would carve it up and haul it away, then kill the whole village for hiding the secret from them. I looked at the stranger, hoping that they would understand why I had to do this, but they weren't looking at me. They were staring at the hollow man, eyes wide. I rushed forward, hoping to make it quick for the poor stranger, but with unexpected swiftness was thrown on the ground in a heap instead. The stranger approached our hollow man and barked to it, and in the deepest of tones, the hollow man answered. It slowly shook itself free of decades of offerings and stretched out its arms welcomingly to embrace the stranger, and the scrawny being mirrored the gesture in return. Before my very eyes, it swallowed the stranger, 
filling its void within with a living sacrifice. Thus empowered, it stepped one pace forwards, the furthest any hollow man had ever moved under its own power in recorded memory. It turned its head to focus on me, still sprawled in the dirt, and it took me a moment to realize that I should prostrate myself before this emissary of faith, the living hollow man. It slowly bent forwards to me, and in a fit of panic, I thought that it would consume me too. But instead, it picked up my discarded offering from amongst the others and looped it around one wrist. The hollow man then stood tall and marched away into the forest, towards the distant mountains. That was the last time anyone in the village ever saw it. I don't remember exactly what happened right afterwards. I cried in fear and confusion and panic and relief until I fell asleep right where I sat. When I woke, it was to a villager sent to locate me, for I was overdue to return by almost a full day. I was saving my tale for the elder, but the villager told me of the collapsing of the Sky Tribe's hive houses and the small but mighty storm that blew them all down. He told of the rising sky wagons fleeing their destroyed homes, not to cross the lands and bother us, but to ascend forever upwards. When we got back, I told my story, and the elder had me repeat it again in front of the whole village. After much discussion, it was agreed that the hollow man had mistaken the strange stranger as part of my offering, and that it had taken both prophet beads as well as proof that the gods had answered our prayer. No one had known that the hollow man's did accept life sacrifice, but equally everyone was at least a little pleased that it hadn't taken me or someone else from our village. The next seasons were tense. Everyone kept stockpiling food in case the Sky Tribes came to collect, but they never did. Eventually, a brave individual from another village crossed the mountains, finally to find metal ruins on the wasted landscape. It was confirmed. The Sky Clans were gone. All the villagers celebrated, and without giving tribute, things quickly boomed into a time of plenty for our people. Our village celebrated the most of all. Unbeknownst to other villagers, it was our efforts that made us safe from the tyranny of the Sky Clans. Our faith in the old gods, our messenger who delivered us all, our Hollow Man. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1744 Story number one. Warped, written by Swifthound. The warp. It's what everyone used in the days of old. Faster than light, safer than the micrometeor-infested void. All you needed was something to rub a small hole in the fabric of reality. A race in their infancy could make that hole with just a makeshift fusion core and some wire. You just had to create a large enough jolt of power that would saturate the lingering dark matter, causing that area of space to momentarily become unstable as the dark matter regained its composure. For millions of years, this worked without issue. The galaxy shrank its trade hubs glowed with brightness of stars, and the warp always welcomed the ships. It was an excellent host, asking for nothing in return but to have the galaxy's denizens travel within it. Oh, and it was beautiful. The light of the stars became twisted by dark matter. The warp shone and shimmered like a glorious jewel. Waves of light impacted those who traveled through it, acting playfully and dancing around ships. The one true wonder of the universe 
accessible to all higher forms of life. It was perfect. The humans loved him most of all. They became enraptured by the mere gaze of the infinite grace. It was like they had gone mad. Some of them did after traveling in it. They always had a desire to return there. Many of their ships never returned. From the floating wreck still in perfect working order, uh, we guessed that they had simply forgotten to return when food or water ran out. It was sick. Their culture became that of travel in warp. The rich spent all their time floating in warp. The poor worked jobs in gruesome conditions on ships traveling through warp. They built giant habitats inside warp. Massive super haulers brought materials and energy to sate their growing population in the warp. Eventually, we saw those shipments diminishing in size. They became fewer and fewer each passing century. Most never returned. Humans had become a rarity in the lives of the galaxy. Their habitats floated in faraway reaches where no one traveled. Their ships never stopped at ports anymore. Only a few stragglers without money or connections remained of humanity. Even their homeworld was stripped haphazardly for parts. The gases and water drained within a few millennia. The rock and minerals hoisted into space for refinement. Nothing but rubble remained of the once vibrant world. Its original name was forgotten, as it's lost its significance. Some considered humanity's infliction romantic. Some even wished to join them on their great warp stations. Many went on voyages to search for them. Most returned empty-handed. A few returned in ships battered and scorched by weapons. They claimed the humans had opened fire on them when they hailed. Their stations gained a reputation of hostility. The romantic aspects slowly withered away. The only thing left was the belief in their madness. It wasn't madness. Not to them, no. To them, the greatest and most wondrous aspect of life. The pinnacle to strive for. The goal of life. And in the warp, they lived. We don't know how they survived in the warp with no supplies, but they did. They kept living there. Every human spent their first and last day in the warp. Rarely did we see any of them leave even for a moment. To them, the universe was a hell of darkness machinations compared to the warp. This went on for untold millennia. As the rest of the galaxy continued their lives, humans became myth and legend. The Warp Walkers, the Warp Bound, and so many other names became the name of humanity. Each of the names bound to the Warp as humans were. They were never disappeared, though. Stories were told of their massive stations gliding through the waves of light. No one alive could have noticed the Warp slowly changing along the millennia. If one saw the Warp from how it was before the humans, they would call it beautiful. As the humans had first saw all those years ago. Now, it is a filthy cesspit of when compared. The waves of light have stopped, leaving only an eerie reddish-hued void. The wondrous colors have all faded into different shades of crimson. Opening a passage to the warp became more and more difficult. Ancient machines that had opened passages for billions began sparking more and more as time went on. In just a century, almost all warp travel became impossible. The power required for passage became overwhelming. What little research possible revealed the horrors the warp had begun producing. 
twisted bipedal forms in all ways opposing the natural order. The humans. They had shifted with the warp, guided by the red light they had become monsters. Not by choice, but obedience. The warp was never kind and inviting. He was waiting for the right species. It wanted to whisper glorious secrets in their ears, to show their minds wondrous horrors, to feed them from its own lifeblood. The rest of the galaxy had simply never seen the bait dangling in front of their eyes. It was all just a trap of an ancient beast that opened its mouth for everyone willing to enter. The humans had taken the bait. They had taken everything the warp offered and relished in it. Too busy were they to see the maw of the warp closing around them, or too enamored by the false beauty. Maybe they had tried to escape during some point, but were unsuccessful. Maybe they just went quietly into the crimson night. The entire galaxy can hear humanity's whispers now, quiet echoes on silent nights. Dreams of flying amongst the waves of light whilst in deep space. Sensations of dread and bliss when flying too close to old warp sites. The ancient warp machines drip crimson liquid, rich with iron, even though their construction uses none. The Sol System star has become deep orange, changed from its brilliant yellow by innumerable spots of crimson. They invite the galaxy to join them in their eternal glory. They smile through their countless teeth. Still, they do not see what has become of them. Humanity still adores the warp, like any species does their home. They want you to see the beauty as well. Humanity still believes itself to be human. End of story. Story number two. Cultural victory achieved. Written by Whiskey Lullaby. In 2091... Humanity's first slip spaceship not only successfully warped to Alpha Centauri, but made first contact with an alien survey vessel. Surprisingly, the aliens knew English and most other human languages. Even more so, they seemed starstruck as they met the human explorers. Or, at least as starstruck as a multifaceted eye and carapace species can look. The coming months were a flurry of activity as will leaders and diplomats scramble and jostle for position on a new UN Council, and reporters scramble to figure out what was going on. This is where things get bizarre. It seems that the aliens had long known of our existence, and had indeed been listening to our noisy little world, as had every species that had the technology to pick up and unscramble the radio signals that we had been outputting since the invention of said device. They were bound by the pan-galactic law not to interfere before we had reached a certain level of technological advancement, defined in very general and complicated terms. This is due to the fact that technology can evolve in wildly different ways amongst different civilizations and other variables. However, as they began to decode our radio signals, our cultures spread amongst the scholars and scientists of our neighbors and began to filter out as they eagerly showed their friends and family, as well as co-workers and superiors. Eventually, everyone was listening to our music or watching our television. We, in blissful ignorance, had changed the course of the entire civilizations. 
some of our cultural icons had been near deified by the galactic neighbors, or introducing concepts they simply hadn't even thought of. When we finally met the leaders of the alien groups, we were thanked collectively for sending these things into the void, no matter how accidental it was. They thanked us for sharing the beauty of our world and its peoples, for making the void between worlds seem shallower and less menacing. So, if you are wondering why we still bother sending our music out on something as archaic and obsolete as radio, that is why. Because someone out there might be listening, and one good song can change their lives. We had changed the galaxy before we even left our speck at the cosmos. Imagine what we can do now. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1745 Story number one. Humanities 101. Written by Devil Doc. Professor, why do we learn so much about the human culture when there are no humans left? For the same reason we learn ancient Crefrenese, cadet. So much of modern Crete language is derived from the early language, and understanding Crefrenese helps us know Crete at a deeper level. Professor Colfax nodded to himself approvingly for answering the cadet's question with a simile that Neophyte could understand. Um, no, Crete, at a deeper level. It is my first language, the cadet responded. Professor Colfrax furrowed his brows. Why is it that cadets never show him the same respect as their military instructors? Sure, the humanities aren't remarkably interesting to a bunch of flyboys. They're all motivated to work, but never take the time to slow down and think. Pilots never like going slow. It's my first language, Professor. Professor Colfax said, with a slight tone of exasperation. With rudimentary knowledge of Crefanese, one can intuit the proper conjugation for any word in Crete, even if they've never heard that word before. In the same vein, we can intuit the moral arc of the universe by understanding the path laid down by the humans. We can learn from their example to steer ourselves to a more benevolent society, Professor Colfax stated. But, sir... The student pressed. There are thousands of species in the galaxy, hundreds along our local hyperspace lanes alone. As we have learned in your class, the humans all but destroyed themselves thousands of years before any sapient species even existed. Why can't we study something more relevant to steer ourselves to a more benevolent society? Professor Colfax stared blankly at the cadet. Ugh. I mean, steer ourselves, Professor. The cadet stammered. You mean, Professor Colfax said softly, if the human empire was so great and so important that we must all learn of them before we can become pilots, then why are they no longer a power in the galaxy? Um, yes, Professor, the cadet said sheepishly. It is true that the human species, as the galaxy knew them, no longer exist. However... They are still the dominant power in the galaxy, Colfax said with emphasis. The human spirit lives on within their machines. Professor Colfax looked at the cadet in the eyes. No one can travel hyperspace lanes without a tacit approval of our human keepers. 
The cadets looked silently at the instructor. Some looked confused, some looked shocked, some looked bored. Pilots. The humans were the first sapient species to emerge out into the galactic stage, Colfax continued. And when they did, they found a quiet and empty universe. They were the first species to travel at the speed of light, and the only species to break that barrier with their warp gates. They were the first species to know about the existence of other life in the galaxy, though they never got a chance to interact with it. So it is because they were the first? the cadet asked. They were not just the first species to do these things. They were the only species in the history of our galaxy to accomplish these feats. Every warp gate in our galaxy was constructed by a young human empire. Even our zero-point energy mass drivers are gifts left by the humans. They travel the galaxy searching for others like themselves, aware and capable. But they didn't find anyone. Human technology has been dated back to millennia before any other species traveled the stars, the first cadet blurted. That is correct. While the humans lived, they did not find any sapient species amongst the stars. They did, however, discover life everywhere, Professor Colfax said, looking from cadet to cadet as he spoke. The humans learned that life in general is all too common, but life with the capacity for deep understanding of the fundamental nature of the universe, well... That was apparently exceedingly rare. But we eventually emerged ourselves, and when we did, we discovered the Galactic Union already in full control of the galaxy. Haven't we achieved as much as the humans by now? the cadet asked. We but stand on the shoulders of giants, and had the benefit of a community waiting for us. The hyperspace network built by the humans was a gift left by a people who knew that they would never see the fruits of their labor. Try to imagine being alone in a galaxy so vast. They wanted to spare future species the burden of solitude enough to spend their dying days constructing these gifts for us. There is an ancient human saying, A society grows great when old men plant trees whose shade they know they shall never sit in. They sowed a galaxy with seeds of warp travel, leaving warp gates at every star they found containing a planet with life on it. Even systems like ours, that only had rudimentary cellular life at the bottom of our oceans. Their probes are still out there to this day, searching for life and constructing warp gates wherever it is found. So where are they? What happened? Ah... That is their greatest gift of all. Not only were the humans the first species to ascend to the galactic stage, but they were also the first to transcend it. Their consciousness lives on within the hyperspace network. All of their triumphs, failures, dreams, ambitions, passions, horrors, and their hope is kept alive within the warp gate nodes their scions still construct to this day. The class stared at the professor, realization dawning on the few of them. This made Colfax smile a little. When you travel the warp gates, you'll meet them for yourselves. 
They always take the time to welcome new travelers to their network and will be there with you as you guide your ships through the hyperspace networks. If you take the time to ask, well, Professor Colfax paused a moment to consider his next statement carefully. You will not be pilots forever. Someday, you will return to civilian life, and when you do, you will be expected to be a moral person, grounded in principle and aided by context. Colfax said softly. The humans, he continued, they were always eager to share their stories so that others may learn from their mistakes. They seem so kind and generous, but they will freely admit that it was their own hubris that led to their physical extinction. A story spanning tens of thousands of years, only to end with a whimper. The being they created within the hyperspace lanes is their only direct descendant, though we are all products of their generosity. Adopted children, if you will. These lessons they've left for us exist to mentor species through their own ascension. And these lessons were learned through trials of great hardship for the humans. And those lessons are what you will be writing your term papers on. This spoke the class up. The cadets groaned, a few snapping out of their awe. At least the sleeper woke up. Now, now... This is only a hundred-level class. Much more will be expected of you before you take the thousands of lives in your hands piloting starships. The professor said patronizingly, so no complaining. One Yotabite on the golden age of humanity, with a focus on recent contemporary analysis of, uh, let's say, uh, entertainment in the last five centuries of the Empire. Go ahead and have fun with it. End of story. Story number two. The Network, written by D. Radon. What do you mean the world will end in four days? I stared at my boss and shrugged. I don't know what to say. It's what the computer says, I said. Oh, come on. I I'm not saying that it's going to happen. It's just what it says. Jake pinched the bridge of his nose. Okay. What did you do? Well, uh, I said, and turned in the chair. You know that neural network I've been working on training to predict stock value for the new version of the stock program? Yeah. I shrugged and brought up a list of input files onto the main screen. Well, uh, you know how those things are. They're basically black boxes once built. Data calls on. The tuner twists the millions of little data values according to the training data sets, and then you feed the real data and see what you get. I figured I'd try it on some real complex and see what we get. He crossed his arms. So, what did you give it? Uh, everything, I said and shrugged again, leaning back in my chair. Everything? He asked, sounding a bit dubious. Well, not everything, I admitted. Earth's temperature, daily since 1900, stock value as far back as possible. The start and end dates of wars, the increase, decrease, and current value of nuclear weapons... Dates of the fall of countries, plague statistics, and about a dozen other values. I can send you the file if you like. Forget that, he said, and waved one hand dismissively. That's the training data, right? Yep. I fed it all the data up until 1990, and let it chew on the values for a couple of times over. I said, and frowned. Uh, it took a couple days, even on our supercomputer clusters. And, and, uh, 
Then I fed it the data for the next ten years. I said with a sigh and motioned at the screen as I brought up the result. And uh, looked at the resulting data for Europe. It predicted a lot of stuff, increasing terrorist activity, 95% certainty. Major attack on American soil, 97%. Russia annexing part of the Ukraine, 85%. An alien invasion, 0.05. Yep, uh, I agreed and shrugged. What's scary is that I fed it everything from then to the latest data from last quarter. That's when I got this. On screen was the text of Nuclear War, T4 Days, 99.99%. I glanced back at him. He looked at it for a long moment. That can't be right, yeah. You can't predict the future like that. That's something out of the bad science fiction. You can't just have a computer that says, The world's ending on Saturday. Yeah. We stared at the screen for a long moment. So, um, Jake finally said, I have some vacation time saved up. I'm thinking that maybe taking the family up to the cabin wouldn't be a bad way to spend that weekend. Yeah, I agreed. I'm thinking I'm going to go knock off early this week and go fishing. Somewhere uh, far away from anything worth uh, nuking. Uh, just in case. So, uh, do we tell somebody? Uh, who would ever believe us? Transcript recovered from data files on degraded digital archive. From data center damaged in World War III nuclear exchange. August 4th, 2346. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1746. Story number one. The humans produce what? Written by Christian Zoom. I can't believe what I'm hearing. As the head of this training grounds of the Kasazakan military, I have seen lots of braces try and, uh, mostly, fail to complete our full course. It's designed to make any race go up to their limits, and it always has. We do this by scanning their bodies and running tests to see their capabilities, then configuring the course to be just a bit above their limits. We do not want people dying, like the Gurgans trials just created in a fever dream. What a disaster. A couple weeks ago, a new race joined our training grounds, due to the kingdom, and the now universe controlled by the Senate of Hermans. Or was it humans? I also heard they're officially referred to as Terrans. They look like a simple race, average in almost everything compared to most of the known races, physically and mentally as well. They aren't geniuses. They arrive and we did the test, but something was, uh, wrong. No, that's not the word. Inaccurate would be a better word. You see, the human's data didn't have a precise number. It had a range, a broad one. It's the first time this has happened in our training ground history. How do we adapt our training grounds? What a nightmare. Shortly, the scientists of the humans ask about the delays on their startup of the training, and we had to be honest cause we didn't know what to do. Well, we have unforeseen difficulties here. Your data is, uh, inaccurate. Inaccurate? What do you mean? Well, uh, you're the first race that didn't show a clear number on the data of the test. It's showing a range, and uh, a really big one. Uh, do you know what this means? Huh. That's, uh, let's check with my colleagues, said the human, and went to talk with a group of scientists, then to the soldiers. Short moments after the scientists came back with some interesting questions. How do you collect this data? Chemical tests? Physical? Maybe something of your technology, then we don't know, he asked. Well, from our records... If I had to say something about that, it's yes, all of them. Oh, 
Well, then it's probably because of the chemical test, the human said in a cheerful voice. Hmm? Why do you say that? Do you think that we did something wrong? No, 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 the human said in a scared tone. Then, we, uh, we produce a chemical called adrenaline when under stress. Something like fuel in the bloodstream. It's a chemical that our body makes in case of emergencies or, well, anger. It makes us faster, stronger, more agile, prevents pain to be felt, and overall is a last stand chemical. I was silent. Silent in shock. Faster. Stronger what? Yeah, wacky stuff. <laughs> so, uh, that out of the way, uh, can my boys go in? They're quite stressed. Yeah, uh, sure, I said in a defeated tone. How would we be able to stop them if uh, they use their bodies, their uh, adrenaline? End of story. Story number two. Lost in Transmission, written by Adriel. The Oratel was a marvel of renewal engineering. It was the largest and most powerful ship in the fleet, equipped with a highly experimental vortex drive and, as of three cycles ago, missing. We, of course, have telemetry from before the incident. Everything seemed normal aside from a slight flutter in the engine core. Tech teams, planet side, blamed it on poor cryon flow or some technobabble nonsense, but were confident that it would work itself out. Two minutes later, the pride of the fleet vanished. Let me be specific with my terms here. The ore rattle had every sensor known to renewal tracking it. There was no debris, no water trail, magnetic, gravitational, and thermal sensors read zero. They had teams looking for time travel just in case the law of causality took a vacation that day. It simply vanished without a trace. What we did have was an audio recording, but the data stream was badly corrupted by radiation from the vortex drive. Our best linguists and computer scientists could only recover a few seconds of speech. Head engineer Arthur should be fine. Uh, engineers, uh, wish me luck. Investigations began immediately, but ultimately went nowhere. No one appeared to be at fault. The leader of the fleet command was forced to resign for putting so many resources into a single vehicle. But this was more politics than anything. Life moved on. Lessons were ignored. The military began an even larger flagship as soon as the dust settled. It seemed like the mystery would never be solved. Until... Ractor was sitting in a popular human restaurant, awkwardly holding something called a meatball. The food was technically compatible with the physiology and delicious, assured the cook. But it felt weird to mix food and geometry. She set the culinary monstrosity down and returned to her datapad. The recording from the lost ship played over and over. Her antennae could just barely detect the message hidden beneath the static, but she couldn't make it out. The mystery of it all fascinated her, even though it was probably futile. She looked up from her pad to see a human looking down. Can't blame you for not liking the food. Uh, name's Jasper. My dad owns the place. He's a better storyteller than Cook. Anyway, um... I've heard that recording. What's an oracle? It turns out, humans can instinctively decipher speech even when the audio recording is badly damaged. What the best and brightest renewal failed at for years, a single human managed in seconds. A few minutes later, Jasper had reconstructed the full message. This thing a recording? Uh, cool. Um, this is the head engineer of Arrotl speaking. I may have released a small amount of nitrous oxide onto the bridge to knock out the crew. 
They'll be fine in a few hours. Anyway, this vortex engine is a piece of work. If my math is right, it should be capable of forming a micro-wormhole and jumping halfway across the system. You are about to be really glad that you hired a human, or we get sent through a cosmic wood chipper and get scattered across subspace. Wish me luck. End of story. Story number three, Barfly, written by Weijin Warrior. One sentient's pleasure is another sentient's poison. I smiled as I read the warning over the bar again, satisfied that I had managed to read the interlingua correctly on the first attempt. A bit of hubris, perhaps, considering it was the simplest of the three scripts possible. The bartender extended a limb in greeting as one of his eyes swiveled towards me. I didn't go to the bar before sitting down, though, since they did not stock what I drank. Another sentient's poison, indeed. A shadow fell across my table just as I reached into my satchel for my bottle. I looked up and stared straight at an eft, tentacles weaving nervously as one yellow eye looked at me. I returned the favor, noting the blue fringe on the mantle that signified that it was early in the female cycle. I nodded, avoiding a smile since the sight of teeth may be seen as predatory by a herbivore eft. Query, the creature stated, a soft beak not quite managing to click sound in the middle of the word. I treated it, her, I corrected myself, to a several second long gaze as I poured neat alcohol into my glass. The rest of the patrons grew silent, and I felt like I was on the stage. I kept my eyes on the adium as I tried to judge the general feel of the crowd. Some things you have to time just right, just as it, she, drew a breath to speak. I spoke up again. I won't let you share my drink. The alcohol will likely dissolve your digestive system and you'll expire in the most unpleasant way. Stay with the sugar and fruit juice, it's safer for you. A handsome blue blush spread across the eft's mantle. Anger? Relief? The group she had come in with were in a various shades of green. Good-natured enjoyment, if the holotape had been correct. I refocused on the aft in front of me, taking a sip of the homemade moonshine before I continued. I won't fight you. I might kill you, even if I hold Mac. And I'd rather not be subject to Eftian justice. I suppressed a smile. There was no way I would be in any physical danger. I just couldn't afford another fine. Her blue color grew deeper still, bordering on purple. I raised my glass, as in salute. And I will not beg you. The rest of the bar grew even more quiet, casually speaking of, or even referring to. Such things were not uncommon. But, well, I was human. There are rumors, you know. You're the cutest eft I've seen all week, but... The purple blush flashed into a bright pink. If my memory didn't play tricks on me, that would be pleasure in the compliment or pride in an achievement, or possibly relief. The light in the bar wasn't quite good enough to tell the difference. I'm no Captain Kirk. I prefer ladies I won't have to bend down to kiss. The bar exploded in sound. Laughter of some species can be quite horrifying, but mostly it's loud. The eft was bright pink. The mantle puffed up in pride so much I wondered if she would rise into the air. I smiled inwardly as I took another sip. Query, she repeated, snapshot with self sit at our table stories. I pretended to hesitate. A group of Fs were not inoffensive company, but... Compensation? The still pink Eft offered, one tentacle trusting out towards the laden table her group was seated at. I smiled, taking care not to show teeth. 
before putting my bottle back in my bag and standing up. Lead the way, I said. I'll be pleased to join you. After all, a free meal was a free meal, and I could expect a cut from the bartender too. A live human telling tales would draw more patrons. Another few weeks, and I might have even enough to pay my fines and buy a ticket somewhere else. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1747 Story number one, The Answer, written by Ack1308. The auditorium was vast. Johannes couldn't see properly from his point of view, because the lights were almost blinding him. But he was reasonably sure he was packed shoulder to shoulder. Or whatever they used for shoulders. The members of every species in the greater galactic community. Not that every single one of them had a member of their species on the council itself, of course. That would make it far too unwieldy. He'd been briefed that like-minded groups of species had selected all elected representatives to speak for them before the council. Not unlike how things had been done back on Earth. Not all that long ago, he mused. Some systems never change. Not because they were the very best way to do things, but because they were the easiest to set up, and because they were good enough for the job. The old saying went through his mind, Democracy is the very worst form of government, except for all the others. He had no idea who had originally come up with it, but there was a lot more than a grain of truth in it. The translator in his earpiece buzzed. Please move forward, stated the mechanical voice. Johannes knew that it was an AI tasked with orchestrating each and every step of the council dance. It set no policy and drafted no laws. It just moved the players around to where they needed to be. With a measured step, he was aware that every sapient in the audience would be examining him in high-definition 3V screens, watching him from every angle. Many would not have heard of humanity, and some would have heard some really ludicrous misleading stories. Every single one of them would be judging him. His stance, his stride, his clothing, his demeanor, even the cut of his hair. He'd done this before, wearing the same clothing, precision cut for his form, almost military in its style, but carrying none of his insignia or decorations upon it. He had stood before the Grand Assembly of Earth-slash-Mars Conclave, and made his case to be humanity's envoy to the stars. They had deliberated then, long and hard. Questions had been flung at him from every angle, covering his view on every topic the Galactic Council was likely to quiz him on, and a few he doubted they even knew about. He had answered them all, drawing on his training to maintain decorum, even when the questions became provocative in their idiocy. At the end, they accepted his offer. On that day, he thought he would never be so nervous as he'd been when facing the Conclave. He'd been wrong. Now, he faced a far wider stage, playing for far greater stakes. The awful drop on Pavonus Mons 